It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains graphic descriptions of mass murder, as well as discussions of violence and sexual assaults. And, as always, we'll be breaking down our sources in depth at the end of the show. We're going to do our best to pronounce all the names in this episode correctly, but we apologize in advance if we mess anything up. Patrick Castro spoke into the fax machine telephone, his mouth full of blood. The killers had shot him through the cheek, smashing his teeth. A few hours earlier, the 23-year-old had been wrapping up his fourth day on the job at the Wendy's on 4012 Main Street in Flushing, Queens. Around closing that night, May 24, 2000, two strangers arrived. 
they'd talked their way into the restaurant by name-dropping the manager, Jean Dumel August. That's when the horror began. Soon, Castro and his co-workers found themselves lured downstairs. The strangers held them at gunpoint. They bound everyone with duct tape. They hooded their victims with plastic bags. They forced the entire crew into a walk-in freezer. They shot them one by one. Bang. 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 Castro fainted. When he awoke, he felt his arms tightly bound behind his back and a strange weight on his legs. Castro freed himself, then ripped the plastic bag away from his face. That's when he saw that the mysterious pressure on his legs was the body of his co-worker, Ali Ibadad. Now he could see that Ali wasn't moving. No one was. But Castro thought he heard a sound from outside the freezer. Knowing that the killers might still be around, he slipped the plastic bag back over his head, held his hands behind his back, and played dead. When he was sure the gunmen were gone, he began asking if any of his co-workers were okay. He heard another noise and saw that it was 18-year-old Jaquan Johnson. Though badly injured from a shot to the head, Johnson seemed to be trying to smile at Castro. Castro managed to get up and drag Johnson out into the office, where he sat him in a chair. After he was sure the shooters were gone, he rang police in the manager's office. The manager and everybody has been shot. We're locked in, Castro told the operator. Then he hauled Johnson, who faded in and out of consciousness, upstairs to wait for police. Officers arrived at the Wendy's at 12.53 a.m. They saw Castro and Johnson in the front part of the eatery, but no one could get the door unlocked. The cops smashed through glass to get at the two wounded young men and radioed for ambulances. Castro and Johnson were rushed away to receive medical treatment. Downstairs, a bloodbath awaited the police officers, crime scene technicians, detectives, and prosecutors who would filter into the restaurant as news of what happened spread. Former Queens DA Richard Brown later said that it was perhaps the worst crime scene he'd seen in his entire tenure. Castro and Johnson were the sole survivors of the Wendy's massacre, an attack that left five of their fellow employees dead. And on that May morning, the two men who'd perpetrated this vicious crime were still on the loose. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenley. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, The Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout season one to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. We're the Murder Sheet, and this is The Wendy's Massacre.
I grew up in the suburbs of New York City, close enough that I was able to commute into the financial district on the Harlem line for years. But when I was a kid, my little village felt like it was a world away from those twisting tunnels and looming skyscrapers. New York City was this big, loud, intimidating place I visited for Take Your Child to Work Day or other special events. Not an everyday thing. I had one near-constant window into the city, though. My grandparents always bought the city tabloids, the New York Post and the New York Daily News. I really liked to flip through those, lingering on all the gruesome crime stuff. I don't think I was reading on my own when this crime happened in 2000, but I vaguely remember learning about the Wendy's massacre, whether that was from the local TV news or from the big, bold letters on the front pages of the newspapers that sat on my grandparents' coffee table. People who aren't from New York City have a perception of the place that's largely informed, or misinformed, by pop culture and outdated perceptions. If your television diet is heavy on police procedurals, you'll probably come away with the notion that the place has always been crawling with serial killers and intricate murder plots. Thanks a lot, Dick Wolf. The truth is that New York City went through a major crime wave that saw its high watermark in the 1980s and 1990s. By the 2000s, that was beginning to ebb. And let me tell you, crimes like the Wendy's massacre were not the norm in 2000 in New York City. I don't think they're the norm anywhere. It's a true crime cliche to say that a murder shocked a town to its core. But that's sort of what happened here. You can see that just from the intensity of the press coverage, from the highly detailed reporting on the crime, the victims, and the outcome of the trial. The cold-blooded slaughter of five beloved, hard-working individuals churned up fear and anger throughout the city. There's something about the brutality, the needless carnage of this robbery homicide that still chills me, even though I've spent many an evening discussing horrific crimes with Kevin. First, let's set the scene and try to picture Flushing's Main Street in our current century's first spring. Flushing was considered a robust and diverse part of Queens in 2000. In the 1980s, Flushing attracted vibrant Chinese, Taiwanese, and Korean communities and became recognized as an immigrant-friendly neighborhood. In fact, of the seven Wendy's employees working in the restaurant on the night of the massacre, Three were immigrants, Auguste, Castro, and Imbadad. They came from Haiti, Ecuador, and Pakistan, respectively. Another employee, Raymond Nazario, hailed from the U.S. territory of Puerto Rico. This particular Wendy's wasn't your typical one-story restaurant found at every highway exit or suburban drag. This was a two-story operation. You had the restaurant's kitchen and dining area at the street level. A stairway led down to a basement area that contained the manager's office, a safe, crew changing rooms, and a walk-in cold storage area. Even though a lot has changed since 2000, we always try to visit historical crime scenes for ourselves. So, back when we were still living in Brooklyn, Anya and I drove to Queens to visit the site of the massacre. After struggling mightily to find a parking place, we headed out and recorded our journey. 
you can hear that flushing is still bustling, even back in January 2021, when concerns about COVID-19 were still on high alert. We moved through Flushing's Chinatown district until we got to an unassuming storefront. The building that used to house the Wendy's still stands, although it's now billed as a mini shopping mall. Here it is. Adi and I walked inside and then moved downstairs, descending that staircase. The same path that Wendy's employees walked as they were lured to their death was eerie. We moved around the narrow aisles of the mostly empty space until we got turned around. Then we moved back to the stairs and got out of there as quickly as we could. But who exactly committed those horrific acts in that basement over 20 years ago? 36-year-old John Taylor and 30-year-old Craig Godino were the men behind the Wendy's massacre. As you could probably guess, immediately after their crimes became known, this duo started pointing fingers at one another, minimizing their own responsibility. So there's been some debate and deflecting about who did what exactly. But we're going to try to sort through the claims and the witness testimony to give you as clear a picture as possible. The thing is, this duo didn't get away with their crime for long. They were arrested on May 26th, less than two days after the murders. I personally think the incompetence of these two perps is a particularly horrifying aspect of the whole story. In the true crime business, we sometimes like to imagine that criminals have these complex motives and schemes. When we're thinking aloud about what happened in a certain cold case or a hotly contested front-page crime story, we sometimes get really invested in the idea of the rational murderer. You know, a perp who takes steps to avoid detection and get away with the crime. We say stuff like, surely the husband wouldn't have taken the chance of moving the car in broad daylight, or why would a stranger risk attacking her in a public place like that? Or the only thing that gives me pause is wouldn't he come up with a better alibi if he was really the killer? Rationality is predictable. It's safe. We don't like the idea of irrational criminals because there's no telling what they'll do, what they'll risk. But there's truly no accounting for an angry, greedy grievance collector who decides that seven lives aren't worth 40 pounds of coins. And that's basically John Taylor in a nutshell. As of 2000, the 36-year-old Taylor was no stranger to the fast food business. On first glance, he seemed to be doing reasonably well within the industry. Taylor was born in Brooklyn's Brownsville neighborhood, in an area marred by gang violence. The young man never seemed to be attracted to that life, though. Kevin Flynn of the New York Times reported that those who knew the young man remembered how he'd always leave for work every day in a fast food uniform. In fact, he'd worked his way up to becoming assistant manager at a number of Manhattan McDonald's locations. He talked about operating his own store one day. 
By 2000, he had three kids to support, including two teens who went on to testify at his trial. They tell a jury that their dad was a dedicated and affectionate parent who always made time for Red Lobster trips and blockbuster video nights. On the job front, the young man gave off the impression that he was committed to McDonald's. One investigator told Newsday that Taylor even wore a McDonald's ring like you'd wear a college class ring. But, at some point, he became embittered with the restaurant chain. Workers said he became stricter, less personable. And then there were the crimes. In 1996, he was busted burglarizing one of the Golden Arches where he worked, an eatery standing in the shadow of the Empire State Building. That arrest was probably no surprise to most of his co-workers. They told investigators that Taylor was constantly pocketing money and pulling scams. But he got probation for the burglary, since he was a first-time offender. From then on, fast food gigs and lawlessness are the two threads that follow Taylor throughout his career. In the year before the Wendy's massacre, Taylor seemed to be on a robbery spree. He hit fast food restaurant after fast food restaurant in June 1999, including Burger King and McDonald's. He was arrested for that series of crimes, but he jumped bail and went on the run. He was a fugitive when he decided to rob the Wendy's on Main Street. See, Taylor wasn't really a stranger, although some of the newer employees didn't recognize him on that night in May 2000. He had also worked at Wendy's, leveraging his past experiences in fast food to snag a managerial role. At some point, in October 1999, Taylor left the company. Some reports have him getting fired for possibly stealing money. Around the same time, he faced an eviction from his apartment. Prosecutors later posited that Taylor wanted revenge against August, who he apparently saw as his replacement. Where appearances were concerned, Craig Gandino was Taylor's opposite. He was tall and skinny, whereas Taylor was heavy and short. When he was a child, he scored below 70 on an IQ test, meaning that he was considered mentally impaired. In 2020, Gadino told PIX11 News that he suffered a sexual assault as a young child and later built up a rap sheet consisting of drug offenses and robbery. Both men began to work security at a Queen's clothing store, and they started to workshop robbery ideas together. Gadino figured they could stick up cabbies, but Taylor had a better plan. He had insider knowledge of fast food joints. He said they could knock over the Wendy's on Main Street. On the night of the massacre, Taylor and Godino took the E-train to Jackson Heights. Taylor wore a fanny pack containing an illegally purchased, loaded, 380 semi-automatic handgun and some extra ammo. He also carried a roll of duct tape in a black plastic bag and a briefcase. At Jackson Heights, the duo transferred to the 7 train. They rode that until the end of the line, and they got off in Flushing. The reasons why they opted to murder five people during the course of what could have been a simple robbery have never been articulated to anyone's satisfaction. If they hadn't wanted to be recognized, they could have picked a different restaurant 
one staffed by strangers. They could have also worn masks. I think the simple explanation is that they did not care. Killing an entire crew of workers to get a little over $2,000 was an acceptable outcome to both men. The cost of doing business. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. EMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's roe.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Meanwhile, in the restaurant, the end of the night proceeded as normal. We know that Anita Smith called her boyfriend at 11.11 p.m., saying that her manager was going to give her a ride home. She later called him shortly before the shooting began, but he missed her. The crew served a young couple and a regular customer who ordered a junior bacon cheeseburger with a few side dishes. After 11 p.m., Smith and another worker had to politely wave away a police officer who happened to stop by for a snack. But they had already admitted Taylor and Godino around 10.55 p.m. when the former manager name-dropped August. The two men were allowed into the restaurant, and they sat down separately and ordered food. At the cash register, Smith smiled at Taylor. He joked around with her a bit. After all, Taylor had been the manager to hire her, although her mother would later say that Smith felt uneasy around him. 
Johnson figured that Taylor was a friend of Augustus, so he told Pix11 News that he worked extra hard on his sandwich. At some point, he and Godino traded takes on their favorite rap artists. It all sounds so normal, so relaxed. Only, something wasn't quite right. Taylor could be seen on videotape glaring at the few other customers remaining in the restaurant until they got up and left for the night around 11.15 p.m. Employees locked the door behind them. At some point, Taylor went downstairs to talk to August. The crew kept working at closing up shop for the night. Then, August's voice crackled over the store intercom. Tell everyone to come downstairs. We're having a meeting. It's important. Team meetings were a normal occurrence, always held in August's downstairs office. With Johnson at the front, the six workers filed down the steps. They didn't know they were descending into a living hell. After slipping on gloves and snapping a phone cord near the top of the stairs, Godino blocked off escape by following the employees down. In the office, Taylor held a gun on August. He had already forced the manager to place $2,400 into his briefcase. Keep in mind, that take wasn't in bills. Most of it was in coins from the safe. 40 pounds. After also obtaining the video surveillance tapes, he told August to call his staff downstairs. He assured the manager that he only wanted to tie everyone up to make his escape. When the other employees arrived, they were forced to the floor. One by one, Godino bound and gagged the workers with duct tape. At one point, August broke free of the tape to remove his gag. He couldn't breathe. Godino punched him in the face and tied him up again. Then, one by one, the group was ushered into the walk-in fridge. Once inside the cold, cramped space, they were forced to kneel and had a plastic garbage bag placed over their heads. The bag over Johnson's head was askew, so he watched what happened next. Taylor first shot August, the manager he so resented. Smith began to scream, What happened? What happened? Taylor shot her, this young woman he'd hired himself. Johnson watched Taylor hand over the gun to Godino, telling his partner to finish them. Godino shot the remaining employees. Later, Taylor would claim that Godino snapped, No witnesses, no witnesses, during the ordeal. The two gunmen didn't seem to realize that they left behind two witnesses, Castro and Johnson. As Castro was shot, he quickly turned his head to the side. The bullet grazed his cheek, breaking several teeth in the process. He passed out and went limp. Johnson felt the bullet enter his skull and smash out of his mouth, breaking a tooth. He began to drift in and out of consciousness. The murderers took off. They didn't go unnoticed, though. A woman waiting for a bus saw Taylor running out of the restaurant. She'd later pick him out of a photo lineup. So would one of the customers who saw the two men at Wendy's, as well as Castro. After they'd gotten away on a Q58 bus, Taylor gave Godino around $300 and then slunk off to lay low in Long Island. The bus driver would also later help to identify one of his late-night passengers. Castro didn't move until he was sure the killers were gone. 
Then he rescued Johnson, like we told you about at the show's opening. The two survivors hadn't known Taylor or Godino, but Castro was able to give investigators a description. Johnson remained in the hospital for some time, suffering from partial paralysis. But in the aftermath of the killings, police quickly honed in on Taylor after receiving an anonymous tip. On May 26th, police zeroed in on Taylor's relative's house in Brentwood, a hamlet in Suffolk County on Long Island. Suffolk County authorities and the NYPD surveyed the house for hours after tracking the suspected killer down via his cell phone activity. Law enforcement was wary of moving too fast. There seemed to be kids all around the property in the neighborhood. Bursting into the house could result in a shootout or a hostage crisis. Then, a little boy riding a bicycle took a tumble in front of the home. Taylor emerged to observe the source of the ruckus. Police approached to provide first aid to the child. The mass murderer also came over, apparently convinced that law enforcement wasn't on to him. The officers casually asked him his name and birth date. He gave his nickname, Benji, along with his real birth date. He was then arrested without incident. Detectives discovered the 380 murder weapon in Taylor's fanny pack. He also had around $1,500 from the robbery and the stolen video surveillance tapes from the store. Taylor immediately ratted on Godino, revealing that the man was working a shift at the local clothing store where they met. He rambled on and on about Craig and how his life was in danger because he'd been a witness to his partner's heinous crimes. Then, after about 10 minutes, he shut up. Godino was arrested at the clothing store and brought in, too. Both men were interviewed separately. They both readily admitted to being involved in the Wendy's massacre, but shifted the blame away from themselves. Taylor remained stony-faced in the interview. Godino cried. On January 22, 2001, Godino would plead guilty to 47 counts. Because of his low IQ, he was spared the death penalty, and given five life sentences. The media's attention remained fixated on the Wendy's massacre, even after the hunt for the suspects ended and Godino pled guilty. Not even 9-11, the terrorist attack that destroyed New York City's World Trade Center and left 2,606 people dead in the city, put a stop to the coverage of Taylor's 2002 murder trial. Personally, I don't think this is one of those cases that will ever attract any sort of wrongful conviction brouhaha. Investigators had these two men dead to rights. In calm, by-the-book interviews, both men confessed, although they were each sure to assign their partner the bulk of the blame. Both copped to at least one shooting. And a palm print on a recently delivered box in the cold storage area tied Taylor to the crime scene. At his trial, prosecutors speculated that Taylor had been after money and revenge. They described him as a resentful man, jealous of Auguste's success, one who had been fired for wrongdoing, one who blamed his replacement for his misfortune. He taught Wendy's the lesson he wanted to teach, said ADA Daniel Saunders in his closing statement in 2002. He wanted them to learn what would happen to one of their stores when Gina Gust was in charge and not him. The court hearings around this case consistently proved to be explosive. 
The families of the victims displayed a righteous, anguished anger towards the two men who had executed their loved ones. These family members spoke to the media about how they did not forgive their loved ones' killers, how they were angry and devastated beyond words, how they wanted death for the two murderers, how they wanted to kill the pair themselves. In one standout exchange, Anita Smith's mother, Joan Truman Smith, chided Godino to look up, turn around, and face the loved ones of the people he killed. At Taylor's trial, another electric moment came when it was time for the two survivors of the massacre to testify. Castro wept on the stand, recounting that night. Johnson was calm, describing how the bullet that ripped through his skull and knocked out one of his teeth felt like a sledgehammer. On November 19, 2002, a jury convicted Taylor of 20 counts of murder and attempted murder. Upon being convicted, Taylor addressed the court with an apology, saying, I'm John Taylor. I stand here before you to say I accept responsibility for my cruel and brutal acts. I have shamed my family and shamed my children. I know you cannot forgive me. I don't expect you to. I'm sorry. Godino had previously apologized for his role in the massacre, saying, I know my apologies to the families will never bring their loved ones back. I do deserve what I get and everything, and I don't expect nobody to accept my apology. I know what I did was wrong, and I shouldn't have been there in the first place. As of 2020, though, Godino has changed his story, nearly two decades into his five times over life sentence. That year, he told PIX11 News that Taylor had shot most of the employees. In the same segment, Johnson disputed his claims. Godino went on to say he didn't want to spend the rest of his life in prison. For the sentencing phase of Taylor's trial, Judge Stephen Fisher told jury members that only a unanimous verdict would result in the death penalty. Otherwise, he'd go with a 175-year sentence for the convicted killer. But on November 26, 2002, the jury came back with a unanimous verdict. They recommended the death penalty for Taylor. It looked like the former Wendy's manager was going to join the Empire State's small and isolated death row community. In reality, however, he was to be the state's last ever death row prisoner. For now, at least. New York's Court of Appeals declared the death penalty unconstitutional in 2004. The Queen's District Attorney's Office pressed for the court to declare an exception in Taylor's case. But, in 2007, the New York Appeals Court refused to make an exception for Taylor. In a 4-3 ruling, they found the death penalty to be unconstitutional. To the dismay of his victims' families, Taylor was resentenced to life without the possibility of parole. We've told you about the crime, the perps, the investigation, and the trial. Now let's talk about the most important part of this story, the five lives so pointlessly cut down. The manager in The First to Die, Jean DeMel August, was a baby-faced young man who had immigrated to the United States from Haiti in 1989, when he was just a teenager. He'd been with Wendy's for five years and previously worked at a different location in Whitestone, Queens. He was transferred to the Flushing Restaurant in January 2000. He was recognized as a generous and helpful crew manager 
who often drove his co-workers home at the end of the night. At the time of the massacre, he was about to get married. He wanted to finish high school and eventually have his own business, his fiancée Linda Pardo told the Haitian Times. He was the most compassionate, caring, loving, ambitious young man that I have ever met. He had strong family values, and he was hoping to pass that on to his own children. In news footage from the time, his heartbroken fiancé can be seen weeping and telling news crews about the wedding that would never happen. Instead of getting married, having kids, and continuing his pursuit of the American dream with Linda in Florida, August would be laid to rest in a coffin emblazoned on the inside with the words, The Lord is my shepherd, and crowned with a statue of the Virgin Mary. His family flew his body back to Croix de Bacays in Haiti for burial. The photo that ran alongside Anita Smith's obituary shows a 22-year-old with a beautiful smile. She was born at the Queen's Hospital Center, the oldest of five children. She'd been working as a cashier for five years, first at a local mall and then at a Long Island City Wendy's. Smith was described as a compassionate and quiet young woman who smiled through the hardest shifts on the job. In March 1999, she was named as her restaurant's Employee of the Month. The Springfield Gardens High School graduate didn't plan on working at Wendy's forever. Smith volunteered at Quality Services for Autistic Children in Astoria. Her goal was to study at York College and become a social worker so she could dedicate her career to helping autistic children. Before her death, Smith had also recently become engaged to her boyfriend of four years, Sheldon Ferguson. Those dreams came to an end when she was declared dead at the hospital where she was born. When I first found out my sister died, I felt like I got shot too, Smith's 11-year-old brother said as part of her eulogy. My sister was feeling more pain than I did. Why did she have to go? Ramon Nazario was a 44-year-old recent hire at the Wendy's on Main Street. By May 2000, he'd only worked at the burger joint for three months. His sister worked at the restaurant, too, although she happened to be off on the night of the murders. He was supporting a wife and a toddler son, and he also had a 23-year-old daughter. Nazario was a guy from a big Catholic family from Puerto Rico, who enjoyed dancing and dressing up for special occasions. A Brooklyn native who learned Taekwondo when he was young to get by in his rough neighborhood. When a grieving family member went to a religious supply shop to purchase a card depicting St. Raymond, Nazario's patron saint, the clerk asked if she was a relative of the slain Wendy's employee. According to a story in the New York Daily News, when she responded that she was, the employee passed along a cluster of free angel pins to distribute to her family. At Nazario's wake, both his wife and mother collapsed from grief. Out of all of the massacre victims, Ali Ibadad had the longest journey home. The 40-year-old had moved to New York to support his wife and two sons who lived in Pakistan. He sacrificed for those he loved, living in a windowless basement apartment in Ridgewood, with roommates in between his numerous shifts. He didn't spend much money on himself other than basic living expenses and sent most of his paycheck home. 
after his murder, a roommate told Newsday that Ibadad's death would destroy his family members, who relied on his support for their survival. Meanwhile, authorities in New York struggled to break the news to his relatives. They couldn't figure out if Ibadad's wife and children had access to a phone and had a hard time finding anyone in the United States who could come and claim his body. As a result, Ibadad lay in a morgue longer than the other victims. Eventually, a relative from Florida traveled north to return him to the family he'd worked so hard to support. At 18, Neely was the youngest victim of the massacre. His gravestone features an angel hugging a heart. The picture of him emblazoned on the stone shows a smiling, youthful face, a young man who looked proud to wear the uniform of his high school's Navy Junior Reserves Officers Training Corps program. He was buried in that same exact uniform. Mourners recounted a teenager and a devoted Christian, always willing to help his friends and his community, doing everything from shoveling snow from driveways to putting shingles on a church roof. The two survivors of the massacre, Castro and Johnson, each made a full physical recovery. Castro moved back to Ecuador after recovering. For Johnson, the recovery process was particularly difficult, although he would walk again. He spoke to PIX11 News in 2020, telling them that he still thinks about his lost friends. We believe that Castro is a hero, and so is Johnson. These two young men survived a nightmarish ordeal and went on to face down the murderers who had so harmed them and killed their co-workers. We hope Castro and Johnson are okay, wherever they are. In true crime stories, you always hear about how loved a victim was. It might get repetitive for a listener, but I think that it's supremely important to talk about the love in stories like this. The five victims in the Wendy's massacre each loved and were fiercely loved in return. In the initial hours and days after the murders, co-workers stood outside the Wendy's, either frozen or weeping over the loss of the victims. They told the Daily News reporters that the crew at the restaurant were like family. A worker named Lolita Rakim summed it up, saying, we loved each other. All that reminded me of something Kevin and I were talking about as we organized our library recently. He was telling me about a book called The Bridge of San Luis Rey by Thornton Wilder. The novel concerns a monk who sets out to discover the meaning behind the deaths of five people in a bridge accident. Was the tragedy part of some divine plan or just random chance? One quote in particular stood out to me. It made me picture in my mind the faces of the five who died at the Wendy's that May night. But soon we shall die, and all memory of those five will have left the earth, and we ourselves shall be loved for a while and forgotten. But the love will have been enough. All those impulses of love return to the love that made them. Even memory is not necessary for love. There is a land of the living and a land of the dead, and the bridge is love, the only survival, the only meaning. We'd like to give special thanks to our listener, Stephen, who recommended that we cover the Wendy's massacre recently. 
on the murder sheet. Sometimes we do source-heavy or interview-based episodes. Other times, we do episodes that come about by piecing together and weaving a narrative out of the existing work of talented journalists. This episode is very much the latter, with some additional insight from court documents. By far, our biggest source for this episode was the New York Daily News. New York City's hometown tabloid did a phenomenal job covering this case from every angle. The paper ran a package called Inside the Massacre on May 26, 2000, that contained so much in-depth information about the case, victims, and all the context. And they kept up the coverage after that as well. We featured information gathered by journalists John Marzulli, Makey Becker, Celeste Katz, Ralph Ortega, Isaac Guzman, Don Singleton, Alice McQuillan, Tracy Connor, Dave Goldener, Barbara Ross, Robert Ingracia, Corky Sismasco, and Scott Schinfrel. Apologies if we got any of those names wrong. If you want an in-depth understanding of the crime, we strongly recommend that you subscribe to newspapers.com and check out some of that early coverage from the news. The New York Times also had some excellent journalism around the case, from reporters David Barstow, Kevin Flynn, William K. Rashbaum, Sarah Kershaw, Robert D. McFadden, Julian E. Barnes, and Anthony De Palma. We also cited articles from Newsday's Mohammed Bazi, who covered the tragic situation involving Ali Ibadad's body. May Cheng, Sean Gardner, Leonard Levitt, William Murphy, Dan Morrison, Rick Brand, Andrew Metz, and Michael Rothfeld all contributed to an in-depth May 28, 2000 article on the arrest of Taylor and Godino. We also cited reporting from Bobby Cuso, Merle English, Brian Varasami, Anthony M. DeFestano, Herbert Lowe, and Bill Mason. We'd be extremely remiss not to mention the work of Donna De La Cruz of the Associated Press and Roosevelt Joseph of the Haitian Times. And if you want to see interviews from both Jaquan Johnson and Craig Godino, then you need to check out PIX11's excellent segment revisiting the case in 2020. We'll include the YouTube link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenlee, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on the murder sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to the murder sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure and send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. 
Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.